HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show was sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated, and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good morning, Heritage Radio listeners. We are coming to you live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, from the back of Roberta's Pizza. I'm happy to welcome my guest today. It's Brian Locano. He grew up in Long Island in a large Italian family. Uh, at age 19, he went to stage at a two Michelin starred restaurant in Oxfordshire, England. And then upon returning at age 19, he began working as a cook at Danielle. He spent a lot of time in the Daniel Baloud family. He's worked at Bar Baloud and DB Bistro Modern. He is now the chef of Acme, which is located in Soho. He was selected as a Zagat 30 under 30. And we're happy to have him here talking about how he has uh, come to work at where he does today. Brian. Ryan, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's start at the early childhood out on Long Island. I'm curious to know who was the actual cook in your family? Is this like a grandma runs the show type of Italian family? Give us the details on what Sunday supper was like at the Loacano household. Grandma definitely ran the show until um, I was about 12. She passed. And my father was always, you know, he loved to cook. So he would really run the show on Sundays. My mom picked up a couple of her old dishes as well, and um, the whole family gets involved with it. What are some staples from your family? I've had actually a couple people on the show that they are from Long Island and Mm -hmm. they're from large Italian families. Besides the Sunday gravy, were there a couple things that were in your grandma's or in your your dad's repertoire that uh, stick out in your mind? Um, The manicotti. We have that every Christmas. I mean, it's like a thin egg pasta crepe you'd almost call it filled with ricotta cheese on top with uh, just tomato sauce which is pretty simple um, stuffed artichokes I used to get on my birthday because they were great they just a little tedious so I think that's why I get them once a year um, stuffed flank steak um, just lots of classic Italian dishes really 
Was it a family around the table type of scenario? Did you eat in front of the TV? Like, how strict was it? It depends on what. It, if it was me, my mom, my dad, and my sister, you can get it around the TV. Mm-hmm. But if grandma was involved, I mean, you're sitting down for sure. So, is it mostly Italian food growing up? Were there any other um, culinary influences that your family brought into the into the house? Well, my grandmother has a cookbook that goes back to like the fifties, and it's either like magazine scraps or you know, old, perfectly grandma cursive written recipes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And some, you could see through it. She's got a lot of like, a lot of Indian cuisine going on there, which I didn't have much of, to be honest. I mean, we'd have a lot of Sunday gravies, things like that. But mm-hmm. as I looked through that book, it's a lot of curry recipes and a lot of, you could see she was interested in that. That's cool. I love the handwritten cursive grammar recipes. Uh, oh, like yeah. it's weird for people to think about that back in the day you didn't just go to pick up a cookbook and you definitely didn't go on a website obviously. So your grandma made stuff with her mom or her dad and then everything was written out and I love hearing that a lot of the instructions like obviously us as chefs you know we're we're now weighing things out to the gram that's yeah. usually how we're doing things in restaurants or we're overseeing a very specific process but did your grandma do you remember any like funny notations or anything like that was she a very specific recipe taker or was it like grab some of this grab some of that yeah there was a lot of that yeah. it was like you know the bowl there's a couple of the recipes say one bowl of <laughs> and it's like you know it's 30 40 years ago which bowl well, yeah and what then, bowl in the kitchen were yeah. you trying to grab and you know it's really it's funny that um my grandfather my great grandfather i just found this out two weeks ago from my dad because his uncle came over my as immigrants in what the 20s maybe or actually i think it was like the 1913 they came over from sicily and they they signed up as shoemakers that was on their on their immigration file whatever there is and they were shoemakers, but then as of a couple months ago, we found out that my great-grandfather was a cook at St. Francis Hospital for his entire life. And he just signed up as a shoemaker for a reason that we don't know. But I just I thought I was the only real like professional chef, and uh-huh. my grandmother loved to cook. My dad's a hospital administrator. I mean... Now I found out my great-grandfather was actually a cook as well for his whole life. That's awesome. I know, right? you got to dig deeper into that and find out, like, Just if, he out came as, if he came, maybe he did have experience making shoes, and they were like, we don't need a shoemaker. We need somebody who can Yeah, who knows? Cook. I have no idea. That's awesome. All right, so it's actually in your blood. You're uh, not the... Apparently, yeah. yeah. you're not you're not the first one in the family. Uh, tell me, though, when you were growing up, you were the first one to really pursue a culinary career. Mm. Was your family into that? Were they behind it? Were they apprehensive to let you go into something that isn't a traditional career trajectory? Yeah, they were. I mean, I worked as a, I was a dishwasher when I was like 14, 15 in Huntington. And then it was a high school job until we were graduating. And I Mm kind of, I don't know, I didn't really have anything else I wanted to do. So I went to, they were very supportive. I mean, my dad said, as long as you... As long as you do the best or try your best at what you're going to do, you're fine. So he, he really wasn't. So what did you end up doing after the you know high school dishwashing jobs? What kind of led you into the next choice that I you was, made? I, I had an apartment in Astoria right out of high school with my buddies, one of my best friend's older brothers. And I worked at Olive's in Union Square um, when it used to be the Todd English restaurant. That was the first restaurant I worked in that wasn't like the clubhouse steakhouse or the chow babies family style pasta place with like a pound of pasta on each plate. But, um, it was cool. And they were, they were always encouraging me about going to Europe and whatnot. And I just, um, 
well, I didn't go to Johnson and Wales for about two weeks. Wasn't for me. Didn't, didn't like it. I just didn't. Under, I looked around. I mean, I support all culinary schools. I just think I had a different. I went a different way, and I moved to England um, after leaving Denver. With my buddies, all went to uh, CU Boulder. So when I, I was like, yeah, of course I'll go to Colorado and Denver. This is gonna be great. And then I hung out in the mountains with them for a bit. Moved to England, and that was like a real. A real awakening. I mean, it was kind of where I got my butt kicked heavily. You'll have to pronounce the name of the restaurant for me because I'll yeah. butcher it. But tell me the name of the restaurant in Oxfordshire. It was a two Michelin starred restaurant. Yeah, and, the Manoir Ox Cassaison. And the uh, Manor of the Four Seasons. Raymond Blanc was the chef. And so tell me about that experience. What's it like to go to a different country? It's probably a very formal, rigid cooking environment. You're yeah. very young. What's uh, What goes through your head when you arrive? It was it was intense. I'm not gonna lie, but it was great. But you also just realize that's when I first realized that I that there was a lot more to the career than just you know being the the best prep cook in Huntington, Long Island, or you know being able to run a 300 person service at Chow Baby or something like that. That's when I realized that there are a lot of guys that were really good at this culinary thing that I was looking into. And uh, Le Memoir was maybe two Michelin since like the late 80s, something like that. And they they've had a lot of great chefs run through there. And they, we had our own, it was like the the truly self-sustaining restaurant. It was in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there was one streetlight in the town of, um, what was it called? Great Milton was the town outside of Oxfordshire, or outside of the city of Oxford. And there was one bar there, like one store. You know, they had their little, you know, I guess like your shoemakers, things like that around. But it was a very tight-knit place. So really, a, like a very much a destination restaurant. Was it very in a? Much. Was it in an actual hotel or was it a standalone restaurant? It was a hotel. Mm-hmm. Like they had, um, like the English football team had a wedding there one day, and they bought it out. They had a helipad in the back, and somebody would land the helipad, and then they'd pick them up in a rolls, and then bring them to the restaurant, and then bring them back. It was kind of nutty. It was, it was cool, but I was really trying to survive. Like in my own, I was getting handed like eight thousand asparagus that I had to pick in the morning. And then, you know, it was the first time I had to take the little leaves off, and I was just like, this is ridiculous. Not like, quite flipping burgers in Huntington. Yeah, and also not quite getting involved with their true, you know, processes in the kitchen or on the line yet, because I really wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. It was, you so know, they, I, had you just, they had you just prepping yeah, in the mainly, back day and night, basically. All the time. I mean, we had to be there at 7, then we had our little break during the day, and then we finished through the service at nighttime. Did you ever end up doing any line work? How long were you there for? It was a stage, so like a couple weeks? It was, well, that's the thing where it got tricky. I, I overstayed my tourist visa. Okay. And then I came home to see to see my family, and I'd been there for maybe six months, something like that, and I you know, had really just international ignorance. I had never even thought about it, thought I was pretty okay, didn't really... Didn't think I was going to get deported when I went back to England. And then I went back to work at the Waterside Inn in Bray. And when I got to Heathrow Airport, there was a controversy about my, uh, you know, what was going on in my passport. And they said, can you stand over there? And then they plastic zip tied me and put me in like their little Heathrow room for two days, and then sent me back to the States. So wow. I never actually made it to the Waterside Inn. So you got like properly got, arrested like, proper, at the airport. My sister framed my. So you got deported from England thing for me a couple of Christmases ago. <laughs> okay, yeah, so that happened. So England wasn't meant to be, but you learned a lot of awesome stuff when you were in Oxfordshire. Oh, yeah. And then so you come back and you've got a bit of a foundation. You've got this mm. groundwork of this classic technique. What's the next thing that you do once you get the cuffs off and come back stateside? <laughs> um, well, I, I, I got over at Restaurant Danielle. 
and I, it was really the what England did the most for me is when I started at Restaurant Danielle, I knew how to act, and I knew how to work, and I knew how quickly to work and how serious it was. So it really changed my my attitude when I started. The memoir was that of a you know, and a very inexperienced cook. And when I got to Restaurant Danielle, I kind of knew a little bit more of how to act, what to say, what not to say, how to how to really push and run around. Okay, I'm going to ask you about this because for those listening and, and that have never even dined at a fine dining restaurant, not even at the caliber of Danielle, can you talk a little bit about, like, the kitchen culture there? What do you mean when you say, like, I knew how to act? Most people probably are thinking... Was that mean that you showed up on time and you finished your prep list? But I don't think they really fully understand what a classic French three Michelin star restaurant kitchen is like. Can you dive into that a little bit? Everybody's very serious. Everybody's there for a reason. They're there to to, to learn and and evolve and grow up to be chefs, you know, sir. But you know, you don't want to. You're not there to make friends per se. You're not there to run around and talk or anything like that. You know, it's not. It's not that environment. It's a very serious one, very loving one, but it's a very serious one at that. So you really have to put forth your work. As you know, you know, if you're working next to somebody and they're not pulling their weight, probably not going to be their best friend. But, you know, if you're working around a group of guys that are really pushing and going towards the same goal, then, you know, you get a very conrobotic group in the kitchen. So you're like 19 or 20 years old at this point something I was, like yeah, that I was, yeah i was around i was I guess i was just turning 20 and you're there. there like full time you're pulling really long days yeah and are you are you back at home are you living in the city what's i was living at the time on henry and allen in chinatown which and, was like this was even this was what like 10 years ago now so it was you know it's definitely a little bit more built up now the 169 bar was there but definitely, but that's uh, it. definitely not like, you know, Mission Chinese, Chinese is over there now and all that. Yeah, Everything it, wasn't, was, it wasn't like the cool spot to be. It was like you could kind of I afford, afford to live there. Barely, yeah, but yeah. it worked. I lived on the ground level. We had an outdoor deck. I learned what that meant when you don't pay that much money for rent, which was pretty rough. So <laughs> You have a garbage dump in behind your apartment? Is that actually basically what it was? Actually, the back patio, it was, it was a building where, like, it was the first floor, the second floor, and the third floor to the seventh there must have been like 400 people living in it and they just used their back windows as like a garbage chute which was my back patio so i would come outside and there would just be like a whole fish with just the head on like laying in the middle of my deck and yeah they used to get mad if we'd be outside listening to music so they would just throw buckets of like crap over it while we were hanging out to get us to stop making noise and hanging out and it worked so i just moved out in due time now uh, now you pay like 2700 for that <laughs> spot they'd be like outdoor space in chinatown it's uh, like yeah. people be fighting banging down the door to try to get that apartment put now. up one of those like event tents those like little <laughs> tiny like white tents yeah let all the yeah. waste sort of roll off the walls yeah they threw like a huge heavy weight down and it destroyed the fa- i came home and it was just crushed in the backyard so <laughs> yeah. what, what was the uh energy like for you being a young guy in New York, you're living in Chinatown, kind of edgy. I mean, you're from Long Island, but it's still a different world being in, yeah, in sure. Chinatown. And then you're you're kind of shooting up to yet another different world, another aspect of New York. What was that like navigating that kind of like downtown cook lifestyle where you're like going up and then it gets fancy, fancy, fancier, and then you're at work? You're just, you know, you definitely see the difference when you get out on 65th and Park. That's the, <laughs> um, it was, to be honest with you, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I always enjoyed it. That's probably why I kept going for, you know, so long of just grinding away and working. It was never something that was so stressful. I mean, you could see your differences. You run into your problems along along the way, but I had a, I had a blast. You know, I did, um, I was at Danielle only for about six months, and then I went to open Barbalude with Damien Cincinnati, 
who I was working there and prepping with them. I think he was the banquet sous chef. And they had asked him to be the executive chef. And then it was a whole other thing. I had never, I never thought, I was in this Michelin kind of grind, and then I went over to do this bistro restaurant. And it was a blast. It was just another, another step. That's where I started to learn more about my, you know, your hand skills, working the line. Like, I remember I didn't know what a, I didn't know what means to, like, glaze a vegetable. And they were like, you know, I just kind of, like, pulling a fake until you make it attitude for a minute. So mm-hmm. then I looked over, and I was like, oh, is that glaze? Okay, I got it. And then I just kind of kept going. I think it was about two and a half years I was at Bar Blue. They made me the sous chef when I was, my like, halfway between being 21, 22. Which is, was, which is incredible, yeah. Yeah, it was huge. I was, And that's when I was just kind of, like, I was just running around and pushing. That was kind of how it went. Becoming the sous chef in the Balloud restaurant group, obviously, you know, being a sous chef anywhere, there's a lot of responsibilities. Did you feel like, two things, did you feel like you yourself had the abilities to take on that role or were you feeling nervous and like fake it till you make it? And also, did they provide structure for you like besides your chef leaders within the restaurant did that group have anything that helped you take on that role beyond beyond just basically saying to yourself like i really hope that i can pull this off well i mean they wouldn't have given me the job if i didn't if i don't think i could have done it mm-hmm. but i mean then you definitely step into a whole new world of responsibility and yeah of course it was very you know i was very nervous but you, know, you just get to work a little earlier and stay a little later and just push through it and it worked you know they of course yeah they you know, they're a massive group, and they, they focus very hard on who they promote and who they, you know, who they focus on and put time into. And it developed over time for me. Like, you know, after that, I went to Restaurant Danielle, and then I went back again to working the line. And then I worked, uh, I remember my, my first day, I was on the fish entremet, and then moved up to the fish, uh, fish station at Danielle, then the meat, and then Jean-Francois Bruel, who I really learned a lot. I mean, between him and Eddie LaRue at Restaurant Danielle, they, I spent a lot of time with them, almost three years there, and then they made me the sous at Danielle. And that was, you know, you, you work just as much, just as hard, but you just start, you start getting better one, you start learning more, you start changing your, your mind, your ideas about food. And, you know, it's just, it was a great progression for me. Tell me about the changing of your thought process and of how your mind works going from line to Sue at both restaurants. I'm curious, when did you start feeling like you were developing a specific leadership style going to become a sous chef? How do you earn the respect of those other people in the kitchen? What, how did you go about doing that? Besides just getting there early and staying late and yeah. showing that you do the work, what, what were some things that you grabbed from those chefs that you still cling to now that you're r- running your own spot? I mean, for me, I mean, it's, every time I changed, you just realize how much you did not know before. So when I was the one, when I was the sous at restaurant Danielle, Everything I was kind of either annoyed about for getting yelled at for, or like, you know, kind of as I moved up, once you get to that point, even now, I'm sure yourself, the same thing. You, you turn around and every, every week of your career, you could turn around and realize that you've learned more in the last week. So that's kind of what happened. I mean, it wasn't like you don't, you know, you can't go in there looking to have respect for people. And, you know, you kind of you're there to learn for yourself. And along with that, you kind of gain these new responsibilities and you just keep learning. That's kind of how it went for me. I and mean, I just kept uh, always, always realized what I didn't know the week before. We're going to take a quick break cool. and then we'll be back with Brian here on the line.
I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years and plus. Each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife Charlie started Bob's Red Mill almost 4 decades ago. Today they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hard-working employees just feels right. The company now has an employee stock ownership plan or ESOP. Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the US currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's it's more than just a job. And and obviously it's the same way for Bob too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com/podcast. Welcome back to the line. I'm here with Brian Locano. He is the chef of Acme in Soho. He's worked at a lot of places. He's mostly been involved prior to that with the Daniel Balud restaurant group, and he spent time at Danielle, Bar Balud, and DB Bistro Modern. But also, Brian, you were in Montauk, and yep. so was I. So I wanted to talk with you a little bit about what it was like at Rushmeyer's. For listeners that don't know, Rushmeyer's is a very small hotel with a very large restaurant mm-hmm. with a lot of outdoor seating, and Rushmeyer's is sort of like a party spot. So you were the chef there for the first summer that the Smile in New York held the F&B contract meaning they were the food and beverage operators for it. So, I'm curious, how did you get involved with the job and what was it like moving out to Montauk for the year to run a very high volume uh seafood restaurant? Yeah, I mean, I, when I was the I left restaurant Danielle to move to Italy and I worked at a two Michelin restaurant or it was a stage which I was much more understanding of the rules of uh, you know visas and tourist mm-hmm. visa and all that. So I was out went there, there legally to went Italy. Went there legally. Well, I went there through Amsterdam, took the train down and then took the train back because I knew just not do what I did the time before. Um and that was great. It was a two Michelin called Ristorante Perbellini, uh just south of Verona. Uh which was great. I've always wanted to go to Italy. I always wanted to work and just get that just get some of that culture in there see something different and uh on my way while I was getting ready to come back I was looking for jobs um through you know Craigslist or forget exactly how I got put in touch Actually, I think it was from a friend contacted me cuz Matt Kligman the owners of the smile was looking for somebody 
out in Montauk, and I actually accepted the job like two days after I got back from Italy. So I was you know there, kind of went home, settled out of my family in Long Island, and then shot out east. And it was, uh, I mean, you know, it's a trip living out in Montauk for the summer. It was a lot of fun, but it was yeah. also my first executive chef job ever, and being in charge of like a whole program and you know putting together the menu. And it was it was great. I mean, I can't you can never complain about living out in Montauk for the summer. I definitely. After the, you know month three or four, you've definitely been out there for the whole summer and you feel it. But uh, it was cool. I mean, I, it was a challenge for me. I had to. I definitely did a lot of work, but uh, it was also a lot of fun. What were those challenges? You know, you'd been at so many fine dining restaurants. You'd been in the Michelin zone for so long, and it's not really like that out there. Nope. At least, I mean, I came four years later when my brother and I ran it. We were co-executive chefs for the fourth year, but I imagine that the crowd was fairly similar and what they're really looking for is like good food fairly fast and it's kind of like a turnum oh, yeah. and burnum environment mm-hmm. because the covers are so high so like um when you were creating the menu before anybody came to like two months into the summer how much changing went on like how much were you evolving things once you were like we're getting your feet out from underneath you you know it was, it was, it was actually one of the, it was probably the best experience one of them in my whole career because it kind of with Matt and Carlos over there, it was the first time that I ever started to try to be myself. And by with their encouragement, just watching how they've done things over time, like it was really a turning point for me to be able to start. It was tough to get out of that Michelin vibe. Like I, w- I went out there, and my first thoughts, I'm like throwing a puree on a plate, and then I was just. By the end of the summer, I had a, a whole different thought process on food, and it leads up to getting over to Acme and how we're doing things over there nowadays. But it's, uh, it definitely. It was another learning process. I learned a lot. I knew I was doing one thing for so long with uh, Michelin food and, you know, precision, which is still important with any food. But I started my mind started to change with what I liked more with food and, you know, how I wanted to relax a little bit and be myself. What I found to be so challenging about that job is, you know, at, at Acme or at any restaurant, you know, that's you have you have some time. I mean, obviously, mm. you want to be hitting on all cylinders right away, but there you have three and a half months of service and then you're done. Right. Right. And so you don't really get a chance to really get a feel for what's working and get a vibe. It was like a constant kind of like push and pull. Um, so now that you are at Acme, I'm curious, like how, how do you, how do you work with menu construction? Um, how do you put things on and take things off at Acme since you have a little bit longer leeway than you do at yeah, a, about a s- seasonal restaurant yeah it's been almost it's been a little over a year and a half now at Acme right. so it's definitely had some time to take a look I mean menu development is one of the most important things in my mind so I think um, you know I guess at Acme we try to have a certain a certain mix of dishes you know everything from small bites that you could share we like to have a nice vegetable components going on like we definitely have a few vegetarian dishes always have something that's vegan it also helps as you know, as a chef, maybe listeners at home might not know, but it's it's much easier in my mind to have those dishes ready to go for vegetarians, people that are dairy-free, people that are doing gluten-free, uh, instead of when you get somebody with an allergy or something like that, you have to run around and make something. So I, we definitely focus on a lot of that to make it, we don't want to just throw a vegetable plate together for somebody for an entree, so we try to have something ready to go and already thought through. When uh, when the owners of Acme brought you on, um, so it's John and we and Jean-Marc are the yeah. owners of Acme. When they brought you on, Acme was a very different restaurant prior to your taking over. Um, how did you work with them and how did it work with 
staff, if any, stayed. I'm curious about front of house, back of house. Um, can you just briefly tell the listeners like what was Acme in its first incarnation and sort of how would you describe it now mm-hmm. and how that affected the process of like did you close the restaurant? Uh, was there an education process for front of house? How does that how does that work when a restaurant retains its name but a whole new talent takes over leadership and changes the direction of that restaurant? You no, know, I started, we closed in January 2016 and kind of, you know, we took about two weeks of being closed to get everything together, you know, all new silverware, whatever we got to uh, reopen and some training for the front of the house and also the kitchen staff. But before that, I was there from maybe October, November doing recipe testing and being in the basement. We did a lot of tastings, a lot of talking, a lot of you know, kind of breaking through ideas and seeing what's going to work the best. And then when we opened, it was, you know, we opened a little pretty simply, not trying to get too crazy. It had to be safe for the first month. And then as time went on, we kind of pick and choose what we liked the most, what was going well. And then we developed into the menu we have now. And so how would you kind of describe your menu? What is the food that comes out of the kitchen at Acme? Yeah, you know, I love people always, you know, because it's not French. It's not I don't Italian. Wanna, I don't want to box you in. No, but, I know. Yeah. I, it's, the, it's, the, it's the question that's been hitting us for like the last year and a half. I mean, it's not, there's the new American comment, which, you know, I, I guess that would be if you put a label on it, what everybody talks about the food. It's, it'd mm-hmm. be new American. But really, we go through phases. I mean, as the season comes along, we play with a lot of, you know, we play with a lot of Spanish techniques, we play with a lot of Asian techniques. I mean, we all have a, we have a lot of different minds in the kitchen. Um, you know, one of my Sus came from the Empayon crew back in the day, and his hot sauce game is amazing. You know, one of my other Sus came from the Breslin crew, and he's got a great mind for different, you know, different dishes, different flavor combinations. We open up the idea of if anybody has an idea, we could talk about it, and it often develops into a cool dish. And it's kind of putting a team together that wants to, everybody wants to kind of have an influence, and if they don't really have the edge for it to figure out a dish yet, we all talk about it together, and it. It really has developed into a place that we kind of have a lot of different ideas going around, and they come together on the plate at the end. It's, it's a lot of fun. Besides being on the line and recipe development, uh, a lot of people like to hear sort of like the behind the scenes of what it's like to be a chef. I'm mm-hmm. curious about what's the one thing or a couple things that you do in your job that you don't enjoy that are hardest for you mm-hmm. um, and that you're either – you're dealing with it or you're working to overcome your sort of uh, mm-hmm. hatred for said task. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things besides like actually what goes on the plate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious for you now that it's really your spot and it's it's your you know collaborative vision with your kitchen team. What's some what's a task that falls to you that you struggle with? I mean, I'm, I'm thankful to say that I don't truly hate any of them, which is nice. It's really good. I mean, before I came here to do the show. Gosh, I wasn't feeling the best this morning, but I knew I had to get up and go take care of payroll before I came over here. So, of course, I shot to the restaurant, took care of that, took my bike over the train, came over here. So, I mean, like, there, it's not a bad thing. I mean, it's part of the job. And it's, you know, in the past, it would be something that was a little bit more frustrating because I wasn't that good at it. Or I didn't really truly grasp the concept of how to do it correctly or whatever. But, I mean, really, there, what you want to do is cook all day and make dishes all day and prep all day. But there's a lot of other things in between that you got to do to get you guys paid or make sure the structure of the restaurant's working properly, the scheduling's going to go well, vacations, all that stuff. You know, so it's, don't hate any of it, but there's anything but being able to sit over a cutting board is a little less fun, that's for sure. There was an article that I read today in the Boston Globe. It was about the the high-cost mental 
and financial of being in the restaurant business, which is a topic that's been covered many, many times. But they interviewed several people that had left the restaurant world to either downsize their operations or maybe move into the corporate world. And I guess how I want to frame that question for you is that in New York, uh, as wages continue to rise and things are becoming more and more expensive, how are you hoping to retain and attract talent uh, beyond just being competitive from a pay structure? It's really expensive to live in New York. I think sooner or later we're going to be talking about not that skilled line cooks be commanding like nineteen, twenty, twenty-five dollars an hour, which right. is very hard for someone in a leadership position and in an ownership position. Uh, what are your thoughts on all of the financial aspects of how difficult it is to go into the restaurant business and also retain what you have created in the restaurant business? It's. I mean, I think about it all the time. Obviously, anybody in our industry would talk about that often. It's just. You got to develop new ways to be smart and intelligent about how you run your kitchen, what you order, what you put on the plate. Um, and for the staff, it matters a lot, too. I mean, it's, if you're going for it and you're truly under explaining to them why you're doing certain things and, you know, why things are the way they are and get keep them involved. I mean, that should I mean, that's uh, just try to keep everybody involved, talk to everybody, always be honest with everybody about what's going on and why and make an environment that's very you know welcoming. We don't really. I mean, voices could always be raised in the kitchen, but at Acme, we definitely have a very... If somebody messes up, I mean, it's more of a disappointed vibe. I mean, there hasn't been a screaming match. You know, we try to keep away from those. So it's, you know, I think it's an environment. These guys are all doing the same thing that I did, I am doing, that most cooks are doing. It's so different than it was when I started, where cooking is now, like, this huge thing that wasn't as popular when, you know, you and I started doing it. Yeah, I mean, when when you really got into it, you know, 10, 12 years ago, it was like it didn't have the same sort of allure. And I think that potentially people didn't think that they could move up so quickly. Yeah. Have you experienced someone, maybe not even an Acme, but in the past kitchens that you've worked in who just thought that things would move a lot quicker for them? And if you, how do you deal with that when someone comes to you and like they might think that they're ready and mm -hmm. they're maybe not ready have you had that discussion ever with a cook yeah plenty of times okay. i mean it's also sometimes they have to you got to respect everybody's own thoughts of what they're doing and if they want to move on and do move up in their own world you, you just you let them i mean if, if guys are ready in my world then they you know we talk about it they move up and if it's if they're not then of course we talk about it if they're not happy that's just a certain kind of chef that you want to have working for you i mean if my you know sometimes some guys are ready to move up and i'll talk to them about that before they talk to me about it and then there are some guys that aren't ready at all and when they want to move up when they're disappointed it's not an argument it's just all right well then you know go move up somewhere then because it's not uh i think it's a certain breed of chefs that truly can sit there and and put in the time and put in the work and they turn out truly seasoned and very talented let's say that uh the 19 year old version of you walks through the doors at Acme, right? Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they're looking to start and you have an opportunity to really like look that person in the face and tell them what they need to do besides just working hard. What advice do you have for a very young person who's starting to cook in New York city? I would focus on yourself and your skills. I mean, also try to always be surrounded by people that are better than you, that you have something to learn from. Um, keep your head down and keep focused. That's about, you know, I've just not, I mean, you know, I, when I see somebody that reminds them me of myself, it's, 
I wouldn't say embarrassing, but I think back to myself at 19, and I'm like, oh, geez, man, this was, I was, I was, <laughs> I've changed a lot. But I could definitely look at if I looked at my 19 year old self now, I would just shake my head and be like, come on, man, get get, get it together. What are you doing? <laughs> so uh, it's yeah, you know, I, I I wish everybody the best of luck. You just gotta make an atmosphere that's gonna be healthy and you know fun for everybody to work in. Since you've uh, since you've spent so much time in New York and you've been in many different restaurants at various price points. I'm curious about what's exciting you right now in the food space. I think that we're seeing a lot of trends both shooting up and down. And by that, I mean like there's really, really high end tasting menus, which are very popular right now. You can spend $400, $500 a person. Mm -hmm. And there's also kind of like this low end thing happening where, uh, there's a lot of cheaper items that uh, people are trying, like uh, Mark Ladner is doing like a pasta uh, restaurant, but it's fast casual and it's very inexpensive. I'm curious, like across the whole spectrum, since you've worked in restaurants of the whole spectrum, is there anything that really excites you and is there anything that really bothers you? Bothers me. I mean, there's, we all got things that bother us with <laughs> the food industry for sure. Um, well, I'm happy to, I want to hear one of them. I mean... You know, I think um, the one, I mean, I think Salt Bay is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I saw him basically like power bomb a filet onto the cutting board, and then you have like the majority of the people in this world are like, this guy's amazing. Which, you know what? More power to him. The guy's crushing it, and I've seen some of his food. It's great. Um, I'm very interested by uh, the fast casual side of things. I mean, I really do, I really do, um, you know, and I think about that all the time, different concepts of. That really interests me, like Italian food. I like to make Italian food much more simple than I used to think it was as compared to Ristorante Perbellini in Italy. Um, French food, like the late-night French bistro vibe, really interests me right now. And the South, um, spent my whole time like trying to go to Europe and doing New York. I've been, I just want to get down South and see what they're doing. I was down in New Orleans recently. I was over in Nashville not too long ago. I want to get down to like Louisville, Kentucky and see some places that I really have never explored. What interests you are like, are you, are you talking about like sort of what everyone thinks of the South, like barbecue style, or are you talking like more just in general, what is happening down there in terms of sourcing? Like what interests you about it? I would say less of what's happening now because it's the same thing that's happening everywhere, whether it be LA or, you know, Louisville or out in New York. I think it's, it's what has happened in the past. It's kind of the traditions that they have and the food that there's to discover from, you know, it's a part of America that I just haven't explored yet. I mean, there's the Midwest, there's all the way out West, there's, you know, down South, just one I haven't been able to tap into yet. It's, it's great. I go down there and I eat till I'm sick almost. And then I come back and I have all these new ideas. So I'm curious when you do have a day off, when you've got a little bit of time to yourself, you've been in New York for a very long time. What are some of your What's two of your favorite spots that you just keep going back to over and over and over mm -hmm. again? I go to Blue Ribbon Sushi all the time. I just said, we just did this thing on Zagat's about like, what's your favorite thing you eat? And the oxtail fried rice has just been one I can't stay away from. It's, I love that stuff. And then, uh, I mean, I try, I try to get out of the city a lot on my days off, as you, I'm sure you would know. I mean, you work here all the time, you're surrounded by all the noise and everything. So, I mean, I try to shoot out to Long Island, see my family upstate go on a small trip something like that i mean if i go out to long island i usually hit little vincent's pizza in my town it's the best pizza ever i mean I best, eat pe best pizza in the world best pizza you in the world first yep <laughs> um yeah i mean it's i just try to find new things i mean if not i'm usually eating in my apartment or just trying to get outside and you know 
cool down a little bit and you know get some rest. Standing over a garbage can at Acme eating a yeah exactly out of a family meal. I mean, it's probably the only day of the week I eat off a plate. Brian, thanks for joining us here. Everyone, uh, please come and find him at Acme Restaurant. Where, it's, where is it located? What's the address? It's, uh, 9 Great Jones Street off Lafayette. Awesome. And you're open for dinner seven days a week? Um, Tuesday through Sunday. Closed on Mondays. Great. Brian, thanks again for being here. Please join us every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for another chef interview here on Heritage Radio. This is The Line. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.